So good to be together today. We're gonna continue our sermon series called The Next Move of God, which is all about our vision and our heartbeat here at Scent. So every fall, we wanna take time to cast vision for the future, and we're doing that with The Next Move of God this year. And David Kinneman, he's the president of the Barner Group, which is like the premier or the premier Christian research institution, he has, has famously said that, that Christianity in the West has reached a point of irreversible decline unless God moves supernaturally, okay? So we desperately need a move of God in our day. And we can't force God to move, but we can hoist up our sails, so to speak, and seek to catch the wind of his Holy Spirit. And last week, we looked at the book of Hosea. It's an obscure Old Testament book. It's a minor prophet book. And we saw, uh, or saw that we can prepare our hearts for a move of God by cultivating holiness, tenderness, and hunger for God. And now the plan for the rest of this series is to camp out in the book of Acts. And specifically, uh, the book of Acts will be in, in the first seven chapters. And, and this book tells us about the most remarkable move of God in human history as is the story of how the church got started and spread throughout the Western world. It brought the Roman Empire to its knees, and now here we are today in Iowa talking about Jesus. And we're planning, like I said, to stay in the first seven chapters, which records the story of the first church as it was in Jerusalem. And then in chapter seven, persecution broke out, and the church spread throughout uh, the Roman world from there. So, or, so we're going to stay in the first seven chapters to gather some principles uh, or from that first church, of what it looks like to position ourselves for a move of God that can spread from here to the world. And if you didn't know, Luke and Acts are actually two parts of like the same book. They're like two volumes. Luke, so the Gospel of Luke, which tells the story of what Jesus did on earth, and then Acts, which tells the story of the first church. And it was written by Luke, if, if you could have guessed. And, and Luke was an intelligent doctor, so Dr. Luke. And he says this in the first two verses of Acts. He says, in my first book, O Theophilus, which was the guy he's writing the book for, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, so Luke was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, so when Luke says that his previous book dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, he's suggesting that this book is gonna be about what Jesus continued to do and teach. But the difference is this time, Jesus is going to work through his apostles. And before Jesus ascends to heaven in chapter one, verse nine, he gives the apostles some important instructions for how to uh, position themselves to be used by him, how to be ready to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, how, how to be used in a move of God, right? So let's take a look at what Jesus says to his apostles and see how it applies to us in trying to position ourselves for a move of God in our time. So it says this in Acts 1. We're gonna be in four and five, eight, and then 12, or 13 through 14. So I'm jumping around a little bit. It says this, and, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, uh, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and Peter and John and James and Andrew and, and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting, or devoting themselves to prayer together with the women 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Okay, so the sermon title is praying or praying for the next move of God. Last week was preparing for the next move of God. This week is praying for the next move of God. Let's pray over it and we'll uh, dive on in. So Lord, I thank you so much for uh, today, this beautiful day, and, and these beautiful people who are here. And Lord, I pray that your word would come to life today. If, if the Bible has been dead to us in the past, I pray that it would come to life and, and cut us to the heart. And God, I pray that this would not be like some speech or, or some boring tips or something, but that this would be a demonstration of your spirit's power. Lord, I recognize that I'm utterly dependent on you to move for this word to have any impact in this room. So God, I pray that you would have your way in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so in May 1722, Count Nicholas Zinzendorf purchased the estate of Berthelsdorf in modern-day Germany. So let me show you the map here of where that's at, okay? So Berthelsdorf, struggle saying that. In the, in the following months, he received these religious refugees from Europe who were fleeing Catholic persecution, and these people would become known as the Moravians, okay? So let's show a picture of Zinzendorf. He's a good-looking guy, good chap right there. He constructed a village there, and he gave it the name Hernhut. And from 1722 through 1727, so five years, these refugees uh, grew to 220 people, and they were made up of several different Protestant sects, including, uh, yeah, several different ones, I won't listen, but, but because of their varying beliefs, they, they dealt with these intense divisions over doctrine. And Zinzendorf, he wanted to address the conflicts so he began going to different homes and studying the scriptures on unity with them and praying for them to, or to be united. And eventually uh, they drew up this agreement called the Brotherly Agreement, which gave some rules for unity in the village. And this agreement did uh, bring some level of unity, but they still didn't really love each other, right? They're like okay with each other, but they didn't really love each other. In the summer of 1727, so again, five years after they started it, uh, they began praying with one another like never before, and they were seeking an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as they did, God began to do things. He was working through children. He, he, he was doing these miraculous things. But then on August 13th, uh, during a communion service, so what we did this morning, the Holy Spirit fell on all of them. And it was such a powerful visitation of the Spirit that or that many referred to it as the Moravian Pentecost, okay, so named after what happened in Acts chapter two, named after what the disciples are praying for in our text today. And following this move of the spirit, the warring factions in the group finally made public peace. And one Moravian historian said this, he, he said, we saw the hand of God in his wonders and we were all under the cloud of our fathers baptized with their spirit. And the Holy Ghost came upon us and in those days, a great sign and wonder took place in our midst. And from that time, scarcely a day passed, but what we beheld, his almighty workings amongst us. A great hunger after the word of God took possession of us so that we would have three services every day at five. Five, five a.m. So don't be complaining about 8.30. Don't be complaining about 6.30 uh, prayer room and 7.30 a.m. and nine o'clock p.m. Everyone desired above everything else that the Holy Spirit might have full control. Self-love and self-will, as well as all disobedience, disappeared, and an overwhelming flood of grace swept us all out into the great ocean of divine love. I want to be swept into an ocean of, of divine love. Come on, somebody. All right, so I want to show the picture where this happened. This was the church that it happened at, great church. Okay, great uh, steeple going on there. All right, so two weeks later, they started a 24-7 prayer meeting. 24 of the single men and 24 of the single women would, would commit to praying for one hour 
each day. So they covered the whole day. And this kicked off a 24-7 prayer meeting that lasted 100 years. Nonstop prayer. And five years later, they began to send out missionaries around Europe. They sent out 100 missionaries in 25 years. And they ended up sponsoring 3,000 missionaries in their first 200 years. And what's amazing about this is the congregation never grew beyond 300 people. Okay, that's about where we're at right now, around 300. Okay, they never grew beyond 300 people. And they sent out 100 missionaries in only 25 years. And then, again, 3,000 in 200 years. And many believe that this was the beginning of the modern missions movement. And their commitment to prayer and mission took them to the far corners of the world, including places like Greenland and South Africa, Egypt, Jerusalem, back to Jerusalem, right, and Iraq. And two missionaries even sold themselves into slavery so they could reach the Caribbean community of St. Thomas. They sold themselves into slavery so they could reach that community. And their ministry also helped convert John Wesley, who was the, like, the leader of the First Great Awakening, and, and he was the one who started the Methodist church. So there's like a Methodist church in every town in Iowa, right? So, uh, so the Moravians are partially why that happened. Uh, the scale of the impact of the Moravians is hard to even quantify. Their commitment to prayer positioned them to be a part of a staggering, world-shaping move of God. Prayer healed the divisions in their community. It empowered them through the Holy Spirit to touch the world with the gospel and the Moravian church, it reminds me so much of the early church. Uh, before the original Pentecost in Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit was poured out, the early church was ineffective. All right, when Jesus was betrayed and crucified, the disciples failed to stay by his side. They cowered in fear. Peter, his right-hand man, the guy who was always flexing, talking about how much he would do for Jesus, he, he denied Jesus three times. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, this is how he found them. Right? So these are supposed to be men of God. This is how he found them. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Right? They're locking the door. Uh, or Jesus came in and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Okay, so they're cowering in fear. So without the fullness of the Holy Spirit, they were weak and divided and inward focused. They lacked the power and the boldness they needed to be the men and women that they were called to be. Have you ever been there before? Uh, do you ever back down from what Jesus calls you to do because you're afraid? Or do you ever fail to, st or to stand strong for him? Do you ever fail to do what he tells you to do or, or follow through on his commands? That's where the disciples were when Jesus found them, afraid and powerless and ineffective. After revealing himself to them and teaching them about the scriptures, he gave this powerless and small church this gigantic mission says this in Matthew 28. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus knew if they're going to go, because you know, to make a disciple, it's not just getting people to like pray a prayer of salvation. To make a disciple is to teach people how to actually live like Christ, right? So if they're gonna go throughout the whole earth and help everyone everywhere become a or these fully formed disciples of Jesus, they're going to need something more, right? Jesus knew that they couldn't just see him resurrected, although that's amazing to see God do great things. They couldn't just see his resurrection. They, need, or they needed to be filled with his resurrection life. They needed to be filled with power. They needed his very life inside of them. And that's what Jesus is getting at in Acts 1. He says this, he says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with what? With the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, so before the disciples could ever be effective in their massive mission that Jesus gave them, they needed to wait for power, right? They needed to wait for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. If you don't know, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. He's not a force to be harnessed. He's not some spooky dude who shows up once in a while. Woo, no, he's a person. And Jesus refers to him as our helper. He says this in John 14. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So the idea is that he's walking alongside you. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And you know him for he dwells with you and he's going to be in you. Okay, so the word for helper is paraclete in the Greek or parakletos. And the word is really difficult to translate in such a way where you can get the fullness of the word, but it means advocate, counselor, comforter, and helper all in one word. And taken together, I think you could literally translate it, the one who comes alongside. So this word gives the image of the Holy Spirit walking side by side with you throughout life. Jesus promised his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit to be their helper. He would guide them Right, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would guide them as they set out on their mission. In John 16, Jesus says that it's better for him to leave and to send the Holy Spirit than to stay. It says this in verse seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That convicts me. That convicts me. It's actually better for us to have the Holy Spirit, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, than for Jesus to be here on earth with us, right? What are we doing wrong if we're not leveraging uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to be effective in the mission that God has given us? Because I, I just don't feel like this feels true to me, right? This idea that it's better for him to go away in the Spirit to be here. Based on the results I'm seeing in the world, it doesn't seem to be true. But it is, right? Jesus doesn't lie. This is true. It's better for him to go and send the Spirit than for us to have Jesus here in the flesh here this morning. Right? Think about that. Holy Spirit here right now or Jesus here? What would you rather have? You're all like Jesus, right? We want to see Jesus. But it's better for the Spirit of God to be here in us. All right? So we see throughout the New Testament that all Christians have the Holy Spirit living inside them. Once you put your faith in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He comes to live in your heart. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, the paraclete lives in you. Right? That should just kind of mess you up a little bit. The Spirit of the living God lives inside of you. That changes the way you live your life. Right, Like you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. How could we do the things we do if the spirit of the living God lives in us? Right, He's given us a new heart and new desires. It says this in Romans 8, 9. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Right, So if you don't have the spirit, you don't actually belong to Jesus, which means if you do have the spirit, you do belong to Jesus. If you belong to, or if you belong to Jesus, you have the spirit, right? So once you put your faith in Christ, the spirit of the living God, the paraclete, lives in you. In John's gospel, we see that, that Jesus' disciples, they received the Holy Spirit just after he appeared to them. It says this in verse uh, 22 of chapter 20. It says, and, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the disciples, they had the Spirit of God living on the inside of their hearts when Jesus told them to wait for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. If they had already received the Spirit in John 20, why do they still need to be baptized in the Spirit in Acts? Well, uh, or let's think about baptism, right? What does baptism mean? We got the baptismal tank there. 
Because we believe God wants to have us baptize more people in the next few weeks. So if you want to get baptized, let's do it. Uh, we had baptism service last week, if you didn't know. But so baptism in the Greek, it's the Greek word baptizo. And it means to dunk, immerse, or overwhelm. If the disciples were going to go from a ragtag group of timid men and women who ran, well, typically the men, actually, the women were awesome, but the men who, who ran when things got hard to powerful men and women of God who stood their ground and brought the gospel to the ends of the earth, if they were going to do this, they needed to be absolutely dunked in the Holy Spirit. Right? They, didn't need, or they needed to be immersed in the Spirit. They needed the Spirit of God flowing out of them, as Jesus talks about in John 7, this idea of rivers of living water flowing out from them. So it's like a Coke bottle. Okay, you buy a bottle of Coke at, at Quick Star, and it has Coke inside the bottle, and once you shake it up, if you shake it up and you open it, the Coke's going to fizz out, right? Uh, so when you put your faith in Christ, it's like there's Coke in the bottle. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. But then when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's like the Spirit of God is flowing out from you. If they're going to not just be saved from their sin, but be effective in their seemingly impossible mission, they needed to be overwhelmed with the very life of God. The power of God needed to rush and spill out of them. He, he needed to overflow out of them. It says this in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We need power if we're going to complete our mission. And we're just having a Greek lesson today, so just go with me. I don't do this every Sunday. I'm not trying to sound smart. I think it's helpful. Okay, so power and the Greek is the word dynamis. Okay, so dynamis is used throughout the gospel of Luke to refer to the miracles that Jesus committed. He, he was operating in dynamis. He, he, he was speaking with dynamis, with power. If the disciples were going to usher in a move of God to the world, a hostile world, and a world that was opposed to the gospel, if they were going to do this, they needed dynamis, right? They needed power. If you're not awake yet, hopefully that helps. As we talk about the next move of God, we need to recognize that if we want a move of God like the earlier church had, we need the same power that they had, right? If we want the next move of God, we need to be immersed, dunked, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as the Smith sisters, they, they prayed, or they prayed Isaiah 44.3 for, for their congregation in the Hebrides. We talked about that last week. Isaiah 44.3, it says this. It says, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. All right? So just as they prayed for that and God answered them, we need to pray that Jesus would just dump his spirit out on us, right? We need to pray for Holy Spirit rain from heaven. We need uh, the Spirit to be poured out on our thirsty hearts and our thirsty land. We need the streams of God to soften the hard parts of our hearts, right? We need God to do something in us. We need dynamis. We need the power of God. But the question is, how do we access the power of God, right? Because for so many of us, if we're honest, we're not operating in the dynamis of God at all. There's no power in our lives. We're not power, or we don't have power over sin. We don't have power to share our faith. We don't have power to overcome the things that are latching onto our hearts. We don't have power, right? So how do we access this power? It's not a question of getting saved. When you put your faith in Christ, the spirit, he, he lives on the inside of your heart. He, he for, or Jesus forgives you. The blood pays for it all. But we need more if we're gonna have the next move of God. How do we get more? 
Well, in verse four, Jesus, the, or the thing, or the first, or the final thing he commanded his disciples to do was to what? To wait, right? To wait. Just wait before you do anything. Don't rush out. Don't try to complete the great commission on your own, right? Don't have a strategy meeting. How many stra- or strategic meetings that churches have should have been prayer meetings, right? Don't have a meeting about strategy. Don't analyze everything. No, no, you need to wait, Obey me and wait for me to pour my spirit out. Jesus knew uh, that before they could change the world, he needed to change them, right? Before uh, they could see hearts turn to the Lord, they needed him to deal with their hearts. And the same applies to us. As we consider the rapid decline of the American church, as we consider the rapid decline of the church in the West as a whole, it can be tempting to try to do a bunch of stuff to try to reverse it. Right, we do ridiculous things in the church and we think it's gonna work. Like if we're cooler, then society's gonna love us. If we're more like, if we fit in with what society wants, then they'll love us. No, 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 no. We need something more uh, than just uh, some new idea or some strategic thing, right? We, the temptation is to try to reverse decline on our own strength it, it, or the temptation is to look for, or for worldly solutions. But I think the word of the Lord to us this morning is we need to learn to wait on God. Old school Christians would say we need to tarry in God's presence. We gotta tarry before the Lord. We need to learn how to tarry again. Right, before we try to plan or strategize or do anything, we just need to get in the presence of God and wait. If we want power, we gotta wait. We must wait And for the Moravians, it took quite some time before they experienced their personal revival that healed their divisions and touched the world. They had to wait, right? Or five years before they really had any progress in their divisions, but then, you know, they had to wait as well once they really started praying. That was months and weeks of praying. And for the Hebridean church, they decided to pray, and then they prayed for weeks, three nights a week from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. They would pray, and they did that for weeks before God did anything. And this is the pathway. We must learn to wait on God. And and this is so hard for us as 21st century Americans. I don't think we have to really wait on anything, right? We live in a culture where we are used to getting what we want when we want it. There's fast food. There's next day shipping. If it takes three days, we're angry about it, right? There's instant downloads. If we spend five minutes at the altar and don't feel anything, we're like, ah, must not be for today. I'm gonna go sit back down in my seat. I'm convinced that this is Part of the reason why we lack power in the Western church, we don't know how to tarry. We don't know how to wait anymore. Over the years, I've been a part of my fair share of prayer meetings. And something I've noticed is the longer we linger in God's presence and wait, the more tangible his presence seems to become. It's as if as we sit in his presence, he erodes our distraction. It takes him like three hours to get rid of the distractions. It takes them like five hours to get rid of the hard hearts, right? So as we sit there and wait, he, he deals with our hearts. He, he fine tunes the, or the frequency of our hearts so we can start to actually hear his voice, right? Just trying to catch the right signal. I want us to be a church that is willing to wait. And we don't put God on our timetable. We don't get mad when, like we don't shake our fist at God when he's not doing what we want to or want him to in our timing. Instead, we try to get in step with what he's doing and we don't have an as soon as possible mindset, but instead an as long as it takes mindset, right? We're not an ASAP church, we're an A-lat church, as long as it takes. 
I'll wait till you give me the power that I need. I'm not moving until I get dynamis. I'm not moving till you meet me here, Lord. I will wait as long as I have to. I think of my brother Derek. He's our Chi Alpha director. He's uh, preaching at a different church this morning in Montezuma. And for him, when he got baptized in the Holy Spirit, he just shut himself in his car. said, I ain't leaving, Lord, till you baptize me in the Holy Spirit. It took a long time. Because, I'm just playing. I was going to make a joke at him, but he's not here. So it it took a long time, but eventually the Lord met him in his car and he got baptized in the Holy Spirit. God is looking for a persistent church like this. I'm not moving. I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I think of Jacob in the Old Testament. He's grabbing on to God's heel. I won't let you go until you bless me. Right? We play too nice sometimes. We're like, if it's in your will. No, it's in God's will to fill you with the Holy Spirit. We don't gotta talk about it. It's in God's will to fill you with the Holy Spirit. It's in his will to baptize you. No, you wait as long as it takes. God is looking for a persistent church, right? But the church, or the early church, they didn't just wait mindlessly though, right? It's not like they just sat there like, hey, waiting on God, let's just chill, right? It's like a waiting room. No, no, they had a very specific posture. It says this in verse 14. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, okay? The disciples, they waited in the posture of prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer is what Luke says here. And devoted means to be steadfastly attentive unto something or to give unremitting care to a thing. They were steadfastly attentive and they gave unremitting care to prayer. Could the same be said about your life? That you give unremitting care to, or to prayer, no, probably not. Not about my life, at least. Right? I need to grow. Right? They were steadfastly to, and they gave unremitting care to prayer. They were ferociously committed to prayer. We see throughout the book of Acts that at every major turning point in God's redemptive arc, in every major turning point, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Every time God like, redirected them or showed up or baptized them in the Holy Spirit, they are praying. If we want to be a part of a great turning point, in the West, we need to get to praying. If we want power, we must wait and pray, right? We must wait in a posture of prayer. Every great move of God, every single one, is, is preceded by extraordinary prayer. Every single one. If we want the next move of God, we gotta be devoted to it. Every Christian, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you have heard a teaching on prayer, right? You've heard someone get in your face and say, you need to pray. But few of us actually pray. Prayer can be such a struggle for us. If you're waiting for prayer to be easy, you'll never pray. Because it ain't easy when you get started. Prayer only becomes easier as you pray. As you get to know God's heart. As you start to actually understand how he feels about you. As you start to see all these coincidences happen in your life then you're gonna want to pray more. But it starts with a decision to start praying and making, it starts with a decision to make prayer a priority. At some point, you have to start making time for it. And you have to say, this is more important than that. This is more important than Netflix. This is more important than sleeping for an extra hour. I need to pray. Uh, There comes a point where you have to set your feelings and your schedule aside and say, I'm going to pray. I remember when I would work part-time jobs in college, So I worked at like Target, Casey's, uh, some of the best places. I remember when I worked, people would show me how to do things. And they're like, show me all the stuff. 
And I'm looking at them and my mind is like blank. I'm like, this is going over my head. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I would just tell myself, I'm just gonna have to figure it out on my own, right? And once I started actually doing the things they told me to do, I would figure it out. But I would never remember their instructions. And the same is true for prayer. Prayer is something you need to learn on the inside. It's something you have to do if you wanna learn how to do it. As you pray, it becomes more natural, but it starts with being disciplined and setting aside time to pray. If we want the power needed for a move of God in our hearts and in the world, we must learn to tarry, wait, and pray. But there's one more piece of this in verse 14, and I love this. Okay, so we see that the church was in one accord as they waited and prayed. Right, they were of one mind, or one passion is what that word means. One mind, one passion. There is just straight up power when the church comes together in unity. And Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. That's why Sunday mornings are so important. Your quiet time at home is great. I love my quiet time by myself, but this time is so powerful when we gather together. When we gather together, he is there with us. And we see throughout the New Testament that Jesus did not come to primarily save individuals. Instead, he came to form and save a family. So 1 Peter 2.5, it says this. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. We, the body of Christ, the church, are being built up into a house. Every great move of God starts with the people of God praying together. If we want power, we must wait and pray in one accord. Every time that people are baptized or filled afresh in the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, besides the apostle Paul, which Paul's a juggernaut, so whatever. Every time they're baptized, they are baptized in groups. Like whole rooms are baptized in the Holy Spirit at once. Everyone starts speaking in tongues. Everyone starts prophesying, right? The whole room is baptized. And this doesn't mean that God can't baptize you in the Spirit by yourself. You know, Pastor Derek baptized in the Holy Spirit by himself. And that's happened for many of you. I have friends who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit in the shower. You can be baptized in the Holy Spirit in many different settings. But it does mean that there is a pattern of God meeting his people as they come together. And last December, we had our annual staff Christmas party for the church in Chi Alpha. And at that point, Derek and Taylor, so again, my brother, just getting a ton of shout outs today, had been praying for a year to get pregnant. They were so discouraged in this season. Every time I saw him, I just saw discouragement on his face. And we took some time to reflect on 2022 during that party. And, and again, you can just see the disappointment. You know, Derek, you know, 22, or 2022 was a great year for me. Derek would say it's like the worst year for him. It was just not a good year. And at the end of that night, we prayed for Derek and Taylor. We had them get in the middle and all 20 of us came around and began praying for them. At some point in the prayer, I could feel the spirit of God like bubbling up in me and emboldening me to pray with authority. Again, not praying the nice prayers. And I've never done this before, but I commanded Taylor's womb to open up in Jesus' name. We all agreed in unity and faith, we're praying with authority. And that day was the very start of their pregnancy that led to twins, Judah Paul in August. If you trace back, it's that day was the very day that you can trace back that pregnancy. As we waited and prayed with one accord, God showed up. Here's the thing, moves of God happen in community. And the call is to bind together and to wait on him. I'll also add this, it's incredibly important. If you want a fresh move of God in your own heart, you need to make sure that you don't have anything against anyone else. 
If you have bitterness, I'm sorry. He's not gonna move. It's like a block. It says in Ephesians, hear me this morning. It says in Ephesians that, or that when we have bitterness, it gives the devil topos in the Greek, space. It gives him physical space in our hearts. It gives the devil a foothold. If you have bitterness, the devil has a foothold in your life and you need to forgive if you want God to do something fresh in your life. You have to deal with unforgiveness. You have to deal with bitterness. It has no place in the child of God. It has no place in someone who has been forgiven of so much. How could we hold petty things against people, or maybe big things, but how can we hold things against people when God has forgiven us of so much? You have to deal with bitterness. You have to deal with unforgiveness. It says this in Matthew 5. It says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, I don't want you at the altar if you got bitterness in your heart. He's saying, go outside and call that person on the phone. Deal with that and come back into the altar. I do want you to come to the altar today, but the point is, deal with that bitterness. Make plans to deal with it. Ephesians 4 again, it says this, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. When we hold on to bitterness or have something against a brother or sister in Christ, it says we grieve God's spirit. How can we expect to be baptized in the spirit we're grieving? Right, we grieve his spirit. We have to be united together. We have to have peace with our brothers and sisters if God is going to move, right? So the main idea this morning is this. The next move of God will begin with unified prayer. 1857 was a tough year in America. If you know anything about American history, this is four years before the Civil War started, and they were dealing with the economic and racial tensions. There was a financial downturn known as the Panic of 1857. Also, the Dred Scott case had been decided, which said that the rights and privileges that the Constitution gives to American citizens do not apply to blacks. And this further accelerated the descent towards the Civil War, which again would start four years later. But not just that, as well, churches were sliding downhill. It was a serious season of decline. The Great Awakening had now been, been in the past and there was a serious moment of decline happening, and many Americans were disillusioned with Christianity for different reasons. You can dig into it, but, but there's one really famous guy that was predicting the Lord's return, and he kept being wrong and changing the date, which people still do that today, and, and Americans were getting kind of disillusioned with Christianity because of that person who was very famous. In the context of this, the 48-year-old Jeremiah Lamphere accepted a position as a city missionary in Manhattan, and he started on July 1st of 1857, and he, was, and he was working on behalf of the North Church of the Dutch Reformed Faith on Fulton Street. And this church was suffering a decline in membership along with most of the other churches in the nation at the time. And the first thing he decided to do was to have a Wednesday noontime prayer meeting. Sounds like something we do right now, midweek prayer. So, so he started this for New York businessmen and Wall Street workers. And he spent time strategizing, handing out flyers, you know, promoting it, doing all that stuff, right? Doing all the marketing, trying to get it going. On the first day, on September 23rd at noon, it was just him uh, that showed up that day. And, uh, but then around 12.20, a few more showed up and a total of six people came that day. On the second week, 20 people showed up. 
revival is breaking out, right? Six to 20, that's some exponential growth in Jesus' name. Come on, somebody. And then the third week, 40 showed up, so doubling. And at this point, they decided to start praying daily. And by November, the prayer meeting spread to three separate rooms in the building. And there was no preaching. It was just praying. And within two or within two years, there were 10,000 people praying at noon prayer meetings all around lower Manhattan. And the churches caught fire. People were being saved daily. And it spread to other cities and states. And, and an awakening swept the nation. Even ships that were coming into the New York Harbor, that, or they came under the, the power and conviction of God's presence. On one ship, a captain and 30 men were converted to Christ before the ship docked. Okay, so four sailors knelt for prayer down in the bottom level of the ship, of the battleship North Carolina. They, uh, or they knelt down and repented of their sins under intense conviction of sin just because of the power of God's presence in the harbor. And, and they began to sing, right? They're singing to God and, and the shipmates come down there and they're like, and they're making fun of them. They're like, what are you doing singing down here? Uh, but then the power of God gripped them and they humbly knelt in repentance too. Now from 1857 to 1860, anywhere from 50,000 to 80,000 people got converted and joined the churches in Manhattan back when there was 800,000 people in Manhattan, right? So 10% of Manhattan gave their lives to Jesus in a two or three year period. It's reported that by 1860, a million people got saved in America. And this is when the population was 30 million. Today it's 300 million right? or 330 some million. So that's at least 3% of the American population gave their lives to Christ because somebody decided to pray. If that happened today, around 10 million people would get saved in America in three years. If we're gonna see a move like the Moravians experience and like the businessmen of 1857 experience, we need to wait and we need to pray in one accord and ask God for power. We need to get desperate for him. We need to prioritize prayer. Isn't that the whole reason why we're, we're Christians is to be in relationship with Jesus? Isn't prayer the main way we commune with him? So many of us, we, we say we know Christ, we don't pray. We don't even talk to him. We read about him, we hear about him, but uh, or we don't have our own relationship with him. There's no story to be told about our own relationship with the Lord, right? If we want God to move, we need to pray. And this is why we're changing midweek prayer from, or from Wednesdays at noon to the prayer room on Tuesday mornings is we wanna get as many people in the prayer room as possible. And we're just finding that the Wednesday time has not worked for a lot of people. So the hope is as we launch the prayer room on October 17th, our church would, would really catch a heart for prayer and say, hey, we're gonna get up early and gather together and pray. Uh, but my hope is that it, it doesn't take 16 days to apply this message. I hope we can apply it today. I wanna invite you uh, to pray now today. We're going to end with prayer here and then prioritize it throughout your week and pick a time, put it in your calendar. You set aside time for everything else in your life. Put a time in your calendar and say, I'm going to spend that time praying and make it a habit in your life. Find time to gather with your community group or with your small group if you're in Chi Alpha and to pray with them throughout the week. Just have little prayer meetings throughout the Cedar Valley. Wait on God and, and listen for him to speak. You don't have to talk the whole time. Prayer is not just like, no, you can sit. And just listen, be in his presence, listen to what he's saying. At the same time, pray with, or with passion and faith, pray with authority. Command some wombs to open up, right? Command some bodies to be healed. Pray with faith and with authority. Pray for more of Jesus in your life. Say, Jesus, I, I know I should want you, but for some reason I want other stuff more. Help me, help me. That kind of prayer pleases his heart. Help me, Lord. I want more of you in my life. Confess your sins in prayer.
confess your sins. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for how I've sinned against you. And confess your sins to your friends that you're praying with. Contend for the next generation. Pray for the children coming up right now. Uh, Pray for our youth. Pray. Say, Lord, I'm not letting them go. I'm not letting them go. I'm not letting a generation go. Lord, I'm, I'm contending. I'm standing in the gap for the next generation. And pray for your friends who don't know Jesus. Write their names down. Say, Lord, I'm circling them in prayer. I'm not letting them go. I, I've been praying for people for over a decade now. And, I'm, and there's some of them I'm starting to see like some movement. I'm like, ooh, it took 10 years. So a little longer than I wanted to. I'm starting to see some movement just in the last few weeks. Right? So, so pray for people to get saved. Pray for the mountains you're up against. I have a list of things in my prayer journal that just say mountains. And just all the really hard things in my life. And I don't think there's a mountain yet that he hasn't moved that I've had on that list for over a year. He just, boom, moves it. Put some mountains on a list and say, Jesus, you're bigger than that mountain. And begin to pray that he would move them. Pray for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. If you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, pray, read the book of Acts. We'll talk about it in two weeks in depth, but, but just go throughout the book of Acts and read all the stories of baptisms in the Holy Spirit. Say, Jesus, I wanna be filled with the Spirit. I wanna be baptized. If you've already been baptized in the Holy Spirit uh, for the first time, guess what? You leak, right? You need to be filled again. Right? You can't just rely on that, on that one experience. You need a fresh filling, a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians 5, keep on being filled with the Spirit. So pray for a fresh filling. We all need to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And pray for a move of God in our church. Say, Lord, grip our hearts. Lord, help us not to leave church and just go on as business as usual, but instead, God, help us to, or to make changes and to contend for our community. Pray for our Sunday morning services and our Wednesday night services for youth group and, and our Tuesday night Chi Alpha services and just pray, say, God, grip people with your presence. I, I think about the harbor story. Pray that people would just fall in conviction and repentance before they even get to the building. Right? Pray for the power of God. Pray for God to show up, right? We don't want to just do this thing. Like, oh, we're just doing it. We're just, we're going through the motions. No, no. We want the power and the presence of the very living God here in our services. But for that to happen, we got to pray. As the early church prayed in that upper room, Jesus responded to their prayers. He baptized them in the Holy Spirit. Peter got up, the same man who denied Jesus three times. He stood up, he preached the gospel and 3,000 people got saved that day. That's the power of the power. That's the power of the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what happens when you are immersed and dunked in the Spirit and Peter would end up giving his life for Christ. Why? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It enabled him to be someone who he could not be on his own. Okay, so for today, I wanna propose to you that God wants to do something similar in your life as he did with Peter. Hey, or you may come in and say, I'm shy. I'm not someone who God could use. I don't know a lot. Well, hey, I think you might be just the kind of person he's looking for. Right? God can do the same in, in you that he did in Peter. And I wanna propose to you that God can do the same in our church that he did in the early church. I believe 3,000 people could get saved in one day. I believe it. He's done it before. He's doing it around the world. Honestly, a massive revival is breaking out in the global south right now. I don't know if you know about that. It seems all bleak here, but God is moving in power. So the prayer is, hey, hey God, we want you here too, right? It's not like God can't do it. It's not like God's not doing it anywhere else. It's just saying, hey, hey God, we want you here in the West, right? I, I heard one pastor this week, I've been listening to a ton of sermons on revival trying to help me with this series. And I heard one pastor this week say, say the only way to break through secularism, which is what we're living in, is prayer. It like, it pokes a hole in the cloud of secularism. All right, so we're praying to, to, to kind of blast a hole through the cloud of secularism and for the, the power of God to just be rained down on us, right? We want what God is doing in the South. We want it here. 
We want it here in the West. Okay, so today, let's pray. So the prayer team would come up. If you guys would stand here, if you, uh, we're gonna end with prayer. If we want the next move of God, there comes a point where we gotta stop talking about it and we gotta start praying for it. Okay, so this morning, I wanna challenge you to come to the altar right now. If you're feeling compelled, come to the altar right now saying, hey, I wanna stand in the gap. I wanna pray for my community. I, I, I wanna get before the Lord right now. Come in faith to the altar. Let's begin to pray. Let's begin to see God's face. Anyone who's feeling compelled to pray, come and say, I'm gonna stand in the gap. If you wanna give your life to Christ, I wanna challenge you to come right now. You don't need me to, to do some special prayer for you. Just come to the altar, just, just to, uh, repent of your sins. Say, Jesus, I need you to save me. Come to the altar, give your life to Christ, but just make sure to tell someone that you did that. If you wanna pray for the baptism in the Holy Spirit, get up here right now in Jesus' name, step out of your seat and, and pray for that. If you want God to work on your heart, if you need to forgive someone, just get up here right now. All right, so, so I'm gonna pray and then we're just gonna seek the Lord. And I wanna encourage you, if you're staying in your seats, that's fine, but, but just be in a posture of prayer. Just do whatever you gotta do to get in that posture. So Lord, right now uh, we come to you and we are contending for a move of God in our generation. We are standing in the gap and God, we are asking you to pour out your spirit. We wanna pop a hole in the cloud of secularism. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit. God, I, I, I pray that your truth would just begin to be pressed on people's hearts that, uh, or the most unlikely people would, would fall under conviction of sin and, and repent of their ways. God, I, I pray for us that you would start with us. I, I pray that you'd help us to turn from our wicked ways and to turn towards you and to run towards you. God, help us to be a praying church, a church that knows that its power is not on our own strength, but it's on your Holy Spirit. I think of Zechariah, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God, I pray that you would do that in our generation. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. All right, let's get in that posture of prayer. Let's seek the Lord for our cities, for ourselves, for our friends.